is a paid program on 630 WLAP. This is the Tom Dupree Show on News Radio 630 WLAP and WLAP.com. Welcome to the camp. I guess you all know why we're here. My name is Tommy, and I became aware this year. If you want to follow me, Got to play pinball and put in your Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show. Got a little Roy Orbison going there in the background. This is a CD called Roy Orbison Black and White Night that had uh, some uh, guest players on there. And it was uh, it was a video shot for HBO back in 1988. And right. It was a bargain bin that I found the other day. So that's what we're listening to this morning. I'm going to read the psalm here. Uh, if I can get it to come up for me. Um we have a special guest today, W. James Host, who's going to be talking about his new book called Changing the Game. Uh, the psalm is Psalm 50. The mighty God, even the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. That's from Psalm 50. Jim, appreciate it. Thanks for being here today. Glad to be here, Tom. Thanks. Um, Many Kentuckians and fans of intercollegiate athletics are familiar with the name Jim Host. As founder and CEO of Host Communications, he was a pioneer in college sports marketing. Host's prevailing innovation in collegiate sports was the concept of bundled licensing, which encouraged corporate partners to become official sponsors of athletic programs across media formats. Host and his team developed the NCAA radio network and introduced what became known as the NCAA's corporate partner program, which employed companies such as Gillette, Valvoline, Coca-Cola, and Pizza Hut to promote university athletic programs in the NCAA at large. Host was involved with the construction of Rupp Arena, the Kentucky Horse Park, and the KFC Yum Center. But few know his full story. And what we wanted to do on this show today, Jim, is talk about you and um, your book. I've known you for a long time, and I know the drive and the passion and uh, uh, a good bit of the story behind your life, and I've had a tremendous amount of respect for you. But this book has come out, and it's meant to be uh, a, a sort of a textbook for college courses on sports marketing. And so I thought we would just talk a little bit about what's in it and uh, get into some of that. Well, it starts with... Uh my parents and uh, my upbringing and uh, the sorts of things I did uh, before uh, I came to college. Uh, I was raised in Ashland, which I still consider to be my hometown. Right, and they consider you to be their homeboy. Yep, and uh, I played in Central Park. We have, uh, there was a television show done called CP1 that was done by KET that still played uh, today. Right. And, um, uh, I, uh, I owe a great deal to, uh, two gentlemen at the YMCA there where I went to work when I was a junior and senior in high school for 60 cents an hour at night. Uh, yeah. and, uh, uh, Paul McMillan and Ernie Chatton, and they're the ones that caused the university of Kentucky to 
know I existed and uh, and uh, then I came to UK on one of the first two baseball scholarships ever given here and the rest is history. So talk a little bit about being an Ashland Tomcat when you were playing uh, baseball at Ashland. Well, uh, I uh, played for George Conley, Larry Conley's dad, yeah. in my sophomore and junior years and for Bob Sang my senior year in baseball, but I also was the team manager of the basketball team. And the reason that that's an important part of the story is because uh, I felt that I could play as well as some of those who were playing basketball. Right. But George didn't want me to play. Uh, yeah. Because he didn't want me hurt my arm. And, uh, and uh, so I became the team manager, and I actually managed the Kentucky All-Star team in – my senior year, and uh, Paul McBrayer, who was then the coach at right. uh, Eastern, offered me a full scholarship to Eastern to manage the basketball team and to play baseball. And so I had agreed to go there. And then in the summer, uh, I was pitching for the uh, for the, a team called Yates Cole out of Ashland, which was a summer pro team. And we were playing for the state summer pro championship in Paintsville. I was pitching against Steve Hamilton, who ended up with the Yankees, Yankees. And the Senators, and uh, and came back to Moorhead. Uh, he was still one of two people uh, who played the NBA and the Major League Baseball uh, in history. Uh, and so anyway, I pitched against him and won two to one. And when the game was over with. Uh, Harry Lancaster, who was Coach Ruff's assistant and the head baseball coach at Kentucky, was standing there. I'd never met him, and he offered me uh, a full scholarship really? uh, at, to Kentucky. And I said, "Well, I've already agreed. I've already agreed to. Uh, I've already agreed to uh, a uh, full scholarship at Eastern Kentucky." And he yeah. said, "Doesn't make any difference." He said, "Turkey Hughes is a baseball coach, and he played at Kentucky, and he'll understand. And I'll tell him." So uh, I ended up at Kentucky and ended up uh, with uh, rooming with all of the basketball players, uh, yeah. which was a great treat within itself. And uh, we played on Old Stall Field. Uh, when I see today's Kentucky Proud Park and I see where we played at Stall Field, we had benches and we had a big bucket of water with a ladle in it. And uh, we yeah. had a 294-foot left field fence and uh, – and we played our SEC games. Our seniors' year, our senior year, we won more games than any team had won in history of UK, and uh, and yet we only won 18 games. Really? Uh, we only played 28 uh, uh -huh. or 26. Whereas today they play, uh, if they go into the NCAA tournament, they play in the 60s. 60s. Uh, so there's a lot of difference, and uh, but it's uh, it caused me to get a college education and radio and television and caused me to have the education to go on to. I'm the first person on either side of my family ever to go to college. My mother came from a family of 15 and my dad from a family of five. I've got 61 first cousins and I'm the first one ever to go to college, ever to get a college degree. And uh, that happened because God gave me the ability of throwing a baseball. And one of them, one of your offspring is sitting right here and she's proud granddaughter or daughter and well she, and she's my oldest she's your oldest <laughs> so and both of you have done a great job with my grandkids uh we've got two uh grandkids that uh, you guys produced and uh and they're both great kids and you both deserve a lot of credit for the job you did in raising them mr or harry lancaster was a big um force in your life and uh you might want to say a little bit about him well he was he was a he was a tough tough guy he graduated from georgetown college and but i tell you somebody asked me one day said uh how was it to play for harry how tough was he i said i played for george Connolly. he was tougher really and so uh so it wasn't it wasn't anything i the first game i pitched at uk was against u of l and uh and I had was blown it by him and had 15 or 16 strikeouts and and leading one to nothing going into the eighth inning and uh, so I threw it but walked a hitter and threw a change up to a uh, to a number eight hitter which of course is verboten 
And the guy hit the ball uh, off the end of his bat and hit the top of the barbed wire fence and went over, and they beat us 2-1. to one. And uh, so uh, now I pitched a one-hitter, lost 2-1. Really? to one. And after the game, Harry said, stay out here. And, yeah, uh, and I remember this story. He, he ran me from the left field fence line to the center field and back until it was dark. And, really? And uh, then he took me by the shirt on my – uh, uniform and shook me against the fence and said, uh, I want you to quit. And I'm to force you to quit. I'm going to take you off meals for a week and I hope you starve. And he walked away from Gosh. me. And, uh, you, Rough. Can, you can imagine this happening today, uh, in today's environment. But <clears throat> so I had one of two choices. Uh, I could go home where my dad would tell me to leave the minute yeah. I walked in and, uh, or second, I could figure out a way for somebody else to go through the food line at the student union building and get my food because I wasn't authorized to sign for my meals as a scholarship player until he determined that I could be signing for. So you I, were actually on a basketball scholarship. No, 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 no. They, they, they were, there were for the first time in the history of the school, they, they offered two full baseball, baseball scholarships. Yeah, and they had a, another guy that was across the floor from us by the name of Dave Franz, who was the first track and field scholarship. Yeah. So they were beginning to offer, offer what they call minor sports scholarships. And so uh, they took me off meals. And so I figured out somebody else could get the meat for me. Somebody else could get vegetables for me. And so after a week, I would check each, each time. And, and, and then I went out and I made up my mind I was going to run harder, be better, work harder than anybody on the team. And uh, he never said another word to me the entire next three years when I was there because I worked harder than anybody. And uh, so when I started my business, the first book I did was called Adolph Rupp as I Knew Him by Harry Lancaster. Yeah. And in the book, in the front of it, he wrote, which I still have on my desk at home, to the young man I coached that made me the proudest, which, of course, is the ultimate compliment best compliment i've ever had in my life and from somebody who absolutely made up his mind that he was either going to break me or he was going to make me and and he he made me and he made you yep and that's great you moved on uh in baseball you you went on to the uh minor leagues i signed uh with uh, they didn't have the draft in those days so scouts uh when i was a senior in high school I got offered 25000 by the Detroit Tigers from a scout whose name was Wayne Blackburn. And, uh, and, but I was 17, mm-hmm. and so you couldn't sign. My dad had to sign for me, and he said, you're not playing pro baseball. You're going to college. You've got a full baseball scholarship, and uh, you're going to get an education. Nobody in this family has ever had a college education. Right. So, um, so now it's my senior year in, in, high, in college, and uh, – uh, the White Sox offered me a contract, and of course, I'd all I my whole life, up to that point, I was desiring to play Major League Baseball. That right. was all I dreamed about. It's all I did. All I thought about and uh, worked at. And so, I uh, uh, signed with the White Sox, and there were two others on that same Kentucky team who signed at the same time: Doug Shively and Jerry Sharp. So the three of us got in Jerry Sharp's car, which was an old Dodge swept back window Dodge. And we drove all day and all night. It was 18 hours to Holdridge, Nebraska. And if you've ever been to Holdridge, Nebraska, there was one hotel in town at three in the morning when we got there that was locked. And so uh, we, uh, and a big hailstorm came. Yeah. And it was so bad, it knocked the windows out in that car. Oh my gosh. And so, uh, that was our introduction to Holdridge, Nebraska, so that we found out there were 71 of us that reported for 18 spots on the team. And so, uh, uh, and the only thing that they told you when you showed up was you signed a contract, and the small print was if they released you, they paid your bus trip back home. Back home. Uh, and that was it. And so, fortunately, I was good enough to make it, and there were 18 of us that made it, and I made it. And then halfway through the year, they promoted me to – the three I league, which was B ball, which today would be double A, at the Lincoln in Lincoln, and I played with uh, five guys who were bonus boys. Uh, I wasn't a bonus boy. They were paying me three hundred seventy-five dollars a month and three dollars a day meal money, uh, and uh, so we were, we lived in 
homes in Holdridge with the family. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, at Lincoln, I lived in the Cornhusker Hotel, and they paid, they paid for that, the team at Lincoln Chiefs, which was a White Sox uh, farm club. And the next year, I was going back to spring training and have a triple-A contract. Well, the last game of the year, we were playing Cedar Rapids, and I had 16 or 17 strikeouts and was blowing it by him and got to the bottom of the eighth inning at Cedar Rapids and uh, threw the ball, and the ball went up into the screen. The manager came running out, who was a former major league pitcher. His name was Ira Hutchison. And he uh, said, what's the matter? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, I'm taking you out. By the time I got to the dugout, I couldn't lift my arm. Oh, and that I was... had blown the labrum, but they didn't know what it was. So they sent me to the hospital, and they shot a full of cortisone, and they said, you'll be okay in the spring. Well, of course, I wasn't okay in the spring. No. Still to this day, cannot get my arm over, all the way up and over. over I never had head. it operated on. And, uh, and uh, ended up... Uh, uh, obviously, that was the end of my baseball. That was the end of your baseball career. Yeah, and it was. I mean, think about the fact that if I hadn't had uh, my dad, who would not sign the contract, right. and the fact of going to college and getting a college degree and majoring in radio and television, and then had enough background to be able to start the business I started, uh, yeah. which uh, uh, you know. So, so if you don't think an education makes a difference, it it does. So you started uh, after baseball. You started a new career, and yeah, but I didn't start uh, in. Uh, uh, I, I actually came back to Lexington. I had done play-by-play uh, -play high school stuff. Uh, I was on the university radio station, and I started doing play-by-play -play of Kentucky when I was a sophomore yeah. in the radio station for the university. And my the head of the radio department was Len Press, who ended up founding right. KT. KT. And uh, so, so uh, he was really a mentor to me, yeah. and saw something in me I didn't see in myself in that business. So uh, he took me under his wing, and by the time I was a senior, I was doing games also for Claude Sullivan, uh, who was the voice of the Standard Oil Network at WVLK, and uh, he. Uh, he would call me and say, I need you to do the high school this week. I'm going away with Kentucky on the road. So, But you couldn't get paid uh, because I was on a full scholarship. So what they would do is I got $10 a game, and they put it in a separate account so that at Christmas time I could get paid when we were yeah. off for either Easter or for Christmas. For something to live on. For something to live So that's how I've made some extra money. Yeah. Uh, uh, so... Um, uh, Anyway, I did high school play-by-play, uh, play, and so when I came back from uh, from pro baseball with my arm in tatters, uh, I started doing. I worked at WFKY in Frankfurt, yeah. And uh, and uh, FKY in Frankfurt was owned by Garbus Kincaid, but uh, but it was against the law to actually own stations that were within listing range of another station. Another in the station. So you can only own seven stations in the country. So what he did is he put FKY under the name of Ken Hart. He put WHAR and Danville under the name of Ray Holbrook. He put WEKY and Richmond under the name of Kevin Barnett and WWKY and, and Winchester under the name of Jerry Cashman. So here I am in Frankfurt, and I'm doing uh, games. And my color analyst was John Duvall, who ended up being general manager at Channel 18 for years. Yeah. And so uh, one morning uh, – Halfway through the football season, I get a call at the station. Host, this is Kincaid. Be in my office tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock and he hung up. Well, I had no idea who Kincaid was. Right. Uh, and so I then asked uh, Kenny Hart, I said, who's Kincaid? He said, what happened? He told me, he, said, he called you? I said, yeah. What's he calling you about? Huh. I said, I don't have a clue. So I go to uh, Lexington the next morning. And I go into his office, which was on the second or third floor of the old Central Bank building, which was on Short Street. And uh, I walked in his office, most intimidating person. He had six red phones behind him. He had uh, uh, he had a big uh, suspenders pulled his his uh, pants pulled up to his to his halfway up his system, and uh, he uh, uh, was sitting there, and he said. Uh, you do a good job on the radio. I said, thank you, sir. He said, I want you to take over doing the caller 
uh, for the Kentucky Central Network. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, I bought Kentucky Central Insurance. I've moved it here from Anchorage. And I want you to be the color analyst for the network I put together. I said, who's the play-by-play guy? D. Huddleston, yeah. who ended up being the United States senator. And he was a owned a radio station, worked for a radio station in Elizabethtown, W-I-E-L. So, uh, so I started, and the reason I did it is because the guy who was doing the color for him got drunk on the air. Yeah. And so they fired him <laughs> and hired me. And, uh, and he said, and you moved to Lexington and I uh, want you to sell uh, radio time. I want you to be on the air at night as a right. disc jockey. And I want you to do sports when they need you to do sports. Yeah. And he said, uh, how much were you making in, in Frankfurt? And I said, same as I was making in pro baseball, $375 a month. Yeah. And he, so they raised me to 425 a month. And, uh, and he said, and you, uh, but you've got to sell. And if you don't sell and make 15% commission, which in essence, the 425 was a draw, he said, you won't last very long. Yeah. So, uh, so that was my challenge. And so that afternoon disc jockey in 1959 on that station was Hal Rogers. And I was the evening disc jockey and Hal Rogers is now United States Congressman. Yeah. So, uh, it was, a unbelievable experience and so that's how i got started here so we want to get into more of your career which led to this book uh obviously you moved on from from broadcasting and let's talk a little bit about host communications and and how it got started well i went to i I left uh i decided after two years of selling and radio broadcasting at blk that i wanted to learn about management so i Picked up Fortune at Forbes to say who's the best managed company in the country, and it was Procter and Gamble. So, yeah. I knew somebody who had interviewed me when I was in college and wanted me to go work for P and G. His name was Jim Colleen. So I called him, and so I went to Cincinnati and I took all their tests, battery of tests, and I tested out well for being a salesman. So they sent me to Chattanooga, Tennessee, to replace a person who had just committed suicide. Oh, gosh. And uh, it was the worst sales territory for P&G in the country because there was a huge uh, bunch of wholesale grocery stores called Dixie Savings Stores, and uh, they would not discount 2% 10 days, which is what P&G required. And so they wouldn't stock any of the P&G soap products uh, other than Tide 24s, which is 24 to a case. We're going to have to take a break here in 30 seconds, so let's go ahead and – Let's take our break. It is the Tom Dupree Show with Jim Host on talking about his book, Changing the Game. We're going to get into more of it as we go into the next half hour. Stay with us. It's the Tom Dupree Show, News Radio 630 WLAP. Yeah, come on, baby. Let me take you by the hand. Experience Keeneland like never before. Railbird returns August 22nd and 23rd in Lexington, Kentucky. See Jason Isbell in the 400 unit. Marin Morris, the head and the heart, Young the Giant, and over 30 acts across three stages. Plus live off-track betting, curated bourbon, equine culture, and more. Tickets are on sale now at RailbirdFest.com. Railbird, August 22nd and 23rd in Lexington, Kentucky. Get in the action at RailbirdFest.com. President's Day savings continue at Sleep Outfitters. Don't miss this final opportunity to get 40% off select Sealy mattresses, like our exclusive Sealy Outfitters Eurotop or Plush mattress. Just $2.99 for the queen. Plus, get up to $300 in free gifts. This week, get free Echo Smart Sound gifts with any purchase $4.99 and up. See store for details. Only at the President's Day sale. Held over at Sleep Outfitters with 15 stores from Danville to Moorhead. It is a beautiful day across the area. Plenty of sunshine on your Saturday. Temperatures slowly improving into the afternoon. We'll make a run into the upper 40s to near 50. Forecast on Sunday, clouds will thicken 50 to 55 for that afternoon high. And by Sunday night and Monday, we're back into wet weather for much of central and eastern Kentucky. Make it a great weekend, everybody. 
From the WKYT First Alert Weather Center, I'm meteorologist Chris Bailey. Broadcasting live 24-7 from the heart of Big Blue Nation, this is News Radio 630 WLAP, an iHeart Radio station. Hi, this is Tom Dupree Jr. If you have your retirement savings in a 401k or 403b plan, your money is in a mutual fund more than likely. In a mutual fund, you invest with a group of people and you are affected by the group with which you invest. If they are withdrawing money while you're holding tight, your investment performance could be affected negatively. At the Prefinancial Group, we invest every account individually. That means each client owns his or her own group of securities, which is unaffected by the behavior of other investors. It is not a pooled account. For a free review of your retirement investment holdings, call Dupree Financial Group at 859-233-0400 and make a no-obligation appointment. Also, be sure to listen to the Tom Dupree Show on Saturdays from 7 to 9 a.m. That's Dupree Financial Group at 859-233-0400 and DupreeFinancial.com. Shaq Sports Hour. You're listening to Shaq Sports Hour. We're talking predictions for MVP this year. Go ahead, caller. Hey, Shaq. My money's on the Epson EcoTank color printer. Excuse me? Oh, dude, it doesn't use cartridges and comes with a ridiculous amount of ink. Oh, uh, sir. Oh, it saves me a ton of trips to the store. Sir. Yeah? You know MVP stands for most valuable player, not most valuable printer, right? Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. MVP. <laughs> yeah. I know sports. Sports. Sports by Epson Tech. Just fill and chill. Available at Best Buy, Office Depot, and Staples. Message and data rates may apply. Earning your degree from one of the top business schools in the country might sound impossible to fit into your workload. But what if there were a business degree that advanced your career skills and gave you access to world-renowned faculty, leaders, and mentors all on your schedule? One that opened doors to some of the most influential CEOs, tech companies, law firms, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders. And what if you could earn that degree in as little as 16 months, 100% online? Find out more. Text RESULT to 79645. Start on the path to earning your MBA or Business Analytics Master's degree online from the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University today. Learn more about the graduate programs from the top-ranked W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University offered 100% online. Text RESULT to 79645. That's R-E-S-U-L-T to 79645. 630 WLAP. Jump over here when you do the ooby dooby. I wanna be the ooby dooby. Ooby dooby. Back on the Tom Dupree Show with Jim Host talking about his book, Changing the Game. He's been giving us uh, a blow by blow of his career thus far. He was at Procter and Gamble in. Uh, in Chattanooga. And I went from Chattanooga to got promoted to be district head salesman in Washington, D.C. Was there the day that Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, yeah. And uh, then uh, left P&G after they were promoting me again. I did not want to live in downtown Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So we came back to Lexington. I took my real estate and insurance test in the same week. Became a licensed real estate broker and then licensed uh, insurance agent. Uh, went in partnerships with uh, Ted Hardwick and Jack Crane and opened a <clears throat> business called Crane, Hardwick, and Host. Uh, uh, Fred Walks, who was then the publisher of the Lexington Leader, called me out of the blue and said, we want you to run Senator John Sherman Cooper's campaign. This is 1966. And I said, uh, well, I'm a registered Democrat because I loved Happy Chandler. Yeah. And he came to all my baseball games. And they said, it doesn't make any difference. So I ran his campaign in 66 and uh, then ran for lieutenant and went to work for Louis Nunn and his administration as his first cabinet head in 1967. Sold all my interest in the real estate business and insurance business. Uh, and at the same time, I was still touching back into play-by-play and uh, so on. There were five networks doing University of Kentucky Sports then, and yeah. I, I was one of them. And uh, so then uh, uh, was in state government, ran for lieutenant governor in 1971, and got my butt whipped, uh, thank God, and uh, lost. 
Came back, had 107 bucks in my pocket, and I owed $76,887 in the campaign. Didn't have enough time to crank an insurance and real estate business back up, so uh, so took a piece of paper and took a line down through the middle of it. Said, "What's what's my biggest assets?" Well, I understood college sports and yep. I understood tourism, and so I decided to start a business called Jim Host and Associates. But I didn't have any associates, and one sound <laughs> like one sound like it was a big company, right? So uh, I uh, about a maybe a couple of months afterwards I got a call from a University of Kentucky from a guy by the name of Don Wheeler who I had worked with at FKY in Frankfurt and he mm -hmm. was now the head of the university radio station at UK and he said uh, why don't you bid on the radio rights the university radio rights which are now exclusive and I said uh, okay uh, who has them now and it was a G.H. Johnston agency out of New York which owned Texaco yeah. theater so uh, I then um, bid on it, uh, got it, uh, had to go back to Jake Graves, who was a banker, and put a bond up because I didn't have any money to ensure yeah. the fact that the network would make sense. So the first year we did the radio network, it, uh, uh, Kentucky went to the Final Four, and it wasn't called the Final Four then. It was called the Division I Men's Basketball Championship. And it was in San Diego in 1975. And, and uh, that was... Uh, the the final four when Kentucky beat Syracuse in the first round and and uh, and Louisville played UCLA in the second game and uh, and Louisville's best free throw shooter was on the foul line with three seconds left to go. Louisville was ahead by one was behind by one point UCLA and the best free throw shooter missed the front of a one and one and Louisville UCLA won the game by a point. And I'll forget it. I'll never forget it as long as I can live. Walking off the court, uh, there was John Wooden, who walks into the press room, which isn't any bigger than this place that we're in here. And he said, he leaned into the microphone, he said, Monday night will be my final game. And somebody said, Coach, what did you say? Monday night will be my final game. And he said, uh, so that Monday night, UCLA won the national championship. Kentucky should have won it. Uh, yeah. Had the ball. Uh, Wooden was called. Was there was a uh, a, a, a foul, uh, and it was uh, and David Myers was on the floor fighting Kevin Gravy over the ball, and they called a foul on Myers, and Wooden came off the bench. They should have called a technical foul on him. They called a technical foul on Myers, and uh, so we missed the front of a one and one. We missed the front of the foul shots. We take the ball out of bounds. They intercept it. We were ahead by one point, and UCLA wins the game by six. Talk about uh, the corporate, the NCAA corporate partner program, and how you got that going. The that the particular broadcast uh, of doing the UK games, Ralph Acker said to me, "You know, you ought to talk to them about doing the NCAA broadcast. It's Miko yeah. doing it." And so I went down on the floor before the championship game. And I said to Tom Jernstead, uh, Tom, how much does Mutual pay you for the radio rights? And he said, 3000 I said, I'm paying you more for UK games. Yeah. And he said, you're right. And I said, uh, how much are you taking in from the rights fees that you're selling? Boy, he's at 21000 How much is Mutual paying you? 3000 I'll give you 30000 and I'll take over all the administration of the universities. So this is the beginning of that's right. What I want to get to is is the beginning of how college sports right. got exactly where it was. So so the first year we did the NCAA national broadcast was in Philadelphia in 1976, and uh, and that was the year that Bobby Knight was undefeated and uh, and won the championship. And then in 1977, we're in Atlanta, and the program, the Final Four program, was really horrible. It was done by the, by the uh, Omni. So I went around the table, and I said, would you like me to do the program? Uh, and they said, well, you're doing a great job with the radio network. Why don't you start doing the programs, too? So all at once, I had a combination of the programs and a print and a radio broadcast. And plus, the NCA was asking me to do an over-the-air uh uh, kind of a 60-second show uh, right. to help promote it. So now, fast forward to 1981, we're at the Spectrum in Philadelphia, and I had figured out 
that the only way this can really work for longevity to really build it, there has to be corporate sponsors. And there yeah. were no corporate sponsors at all in college athletics, none. And Walter Byers, who was head of the NCA, made the comment that uh, there would never be any commercialism of the championship with signage or anything of that nature. So I went to him at the Union League in Philadelphia in 1981, and I said, Walter, it's time for corporate sponsors. And he said, over my effing dead body, really? and walked away from me. And I sent him a, a outline of why it made sense. And uh, he he re answered me by just saying, duly noted, yeah. and sick. So I kept sending it to him. And six months later, he called me out of the blue. And uh, what I didn't know was that the College Football Association, which had been started by Chuck Ninus, uh, was threatening to take over the NCAA's position in basketball. And uh, I didn't know that. And, yeah. But he called me and said, come talk to me about your idea about corporate sponsorships. So I did and put a whole position paper in. I just went in by myself. And uh, he said, uh, how much do you think you can sell one for? And I said, 250000 probably. And he said, I'll tell you what we'll do. You go try to sell one, and, uh, and I get half, and you get half, and you got to pay all the expenses out of your half, and you got to service them. Right. And so uh, I said, uh, Okay, so I, I go to call on Gillette, and it, in the book it talks about how all that all happened and why. And so I go in, and I took a guy with me. His name was Bruce Beckham. He was a close friend who was part of the National Tour Association, which was what my real income was coming from yeah. because I was managing them and uh, as a national association. So I took him with me. And there were no computers. There was no uh, anything, and we just had these big whiteboards that you would make presentations on, and you'd had carry these big artist books. And so I took this in to make this presentation. I had these three guys, all of them. One of them was president of the safety res division. One of them was president of the personal care products division. So I put this board up, and uh, Bill Ryan, who was head of personal care products, said, Jim, uh, what are you here for? And yeah. I said, uh, I want Gillette to be the first NCA corporate sponsor. Okay, well, what's that mean? And I said, well, you get to put on the, your brand uh, that you're the official sponsor of NCA championships and NCA championship. And they said, uh, okay, well, uh, and I said, and, they, and I learned this with P&G because at P&G, if they were trying to sell a soap product, they would put five cents off. Right. Well, everybody else could copy it. But on this, you couldn't copy it because it would be exclusive. So so why the book? Let's talk about. Because the reason for the book is how did the whole area of corporate sports. There you go. In college. How did, why, how did it happen? And why did it happen? Why did it happen? And it happened because it gave people the competitive advantage of being able to put their brand on NCAA, and it also helped the NCAA build the NCAA brand and build the, the championship. And that is that that is a, a a tenet of sports marketing programs throughout the country is that they well there weren't any, there weren't any, there weren't any there weren't any in any schools. Professional teams had some, but not very many. Yeah. Uh, but nobody had it in college sports. Nobody, everybody had a radio network. People would sell signage. People would sell a print program. So we bundled them all into one and said, yeah. you have exclusive rights as a sponsor to, uh, so, uh, so I sold Gillette. So I walk in and I say, and, it, and, it, and this is, we're 15 minutes into this presentation. And he said, uh, well, how much? And I said, 500,000. I had told buyers 250,000. Mm -hmm. So I said, 500,000. And it goes up uh, by consumer price index each year for three years, and it's a three-year contract. Right. And they all looked and looked at each other and said, how many tickets do we get for the <laughs> championship? And I said, uh, you got to buy, but we'll give you 20, but you got to buy them. Okay. And they all looked at each other and said, we'll take it. And all at once I'm thinking, man, I sold this too cheaply. Yeah. And so I w we went outside. I've sold one, all right? Yep. So I get on the phone. And knowing that the championships coming to Lexington in 1985, so I sell called Valvoline because I knew the guy that was head of marketing, Carl Fry at Valvoline, 
And I said, I got an idea for you, Carl. You can you can promote Valvoline and you can have your sponsors come to. He said, How much? I said, Five hundred thousand. Okay, I'll take it. So those were my first two, in one day, of five hundred thousand a piece, which was by far more than I was selling the NCA radio network for at any point in time. At any point in time. So then, uh, so I called Walter Byers and I said, I've just sold two. He said, How much did you get? And he, I said five hundred thousand for each. He said, "You told me two fifty. You got that much more?" And I said, "Yes." He said, "What were you doing selling air?" And I said, "No, selling the vision of what this can do in building the NCA brand right. and also in selling more product." Well, guess what the Gillette people told me? Gillette people for paying five hundred thousand sold one hundred and forty-one million dollars worth of razor blades with that promotion. And they did it on freestanding inserts where they put coupons and freestanding yeah. inserts. And the deal was win two tickets to the, to the national championship because it wasn't called a Final Four. What people don't realize is that at the time Jim was doing this, he was a pioneer completely unlike anybody else in the business in learning how to monetize college sport sports. college sports, which is is the base for for what you built later on. It it, it it's absolutely the 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 bread and butter of what your career all, became. All the schools uh, of of all the schools and your company, yep. Post Communication. Yeah. Yep. So uh, anyway, uh, we got the first two off the ground, and uh, but the problem was I couldn't get Walter Byers to approve the contract. So it took me two years, two years from the time it was sold to get the contract finished and signed. So even though I had sold them, and so I stopped after yep. selling those first two because they were getting nervous to the fact it wasn't going to happen, and I kept saying it was going to happen, and I would have two officials of the NCA who worked for buyers telling me that it was going to happen, but it wasn't. So all at once, one day, I met the head of Gillette. We went to Kansas City, went in to see buyers. Buyers took the contract out and said, let's go through it. And in front of both of us, we made changes and signed it. And that was how it started. From there on, uh, we built the program, which uh, exists today. Jim, you've done a lot of other things in addition to uh, host communications. Uh, you, you worked with Rupp Arena. Yeah. You worked with the, the Yum Center. You've had a multifaceted career. And I believe that's the reason behind this book is is to talk about you, the individual, and the different things that you've done uh, throughout your life. Not just the sports marketing stuff, but um, also other civic endeavors that have really distinguished you in so many ways. This book is is designed uh, by Eric Moyen, uh, well, with Eric Moyen, uh, changing the game to describe your career and in uh, its many facets. And um, talk a little bit about the Rupp Arena and the um, uh, the Yum Center. Well, uh, the first one was the Kentucky Horse Park. Yeah, uh, because uh, I was in Frankfurt and uh, and all, all at once the horse farms, all of which used to be open to the public, were all closing because of arson on the farms. Right. So we called it. There was a big meeting, and I'm running tourism for the state. And this is 1968, and I'm running tourism for the state. So uh, so uh, uh, I meet with all the horse farm managers and say, why don't we? have a central place that everybody brings motor coaches, buses to a site, and one day we'll tour Spindletop or uh, uh, Spendthrift, one day we'll tour Calumet and so on. Well, they all thought that was a great idea because they could control it, but they still wanted people to understand the breeding business because you never knew when somebody might be coming that would, would buy a horse or right. would, be, would invest in a farm. So... Uh, so as a result of that, the meeting was very heavily publicized, and I got a call from John Gaines. And I had sold his farm, the original Gainesway, to where now the American exists. Uh, mm -hmm. was all a real estate sale I made with a real estate license. 
And uh, so John, so I had worked with John. He already knew me, and, and we liked each other, and he was a very talented, bright guy. So he calls me out of the blue, and he said, uh, I want to meet with you about the horse park. And I said, uh, he said, I got an idea. So we met at Pete Flynn's restaurant in Frankfurt, and uh, he said, I want to create the Kentucky Thoroughbred Park. And I said, John, it's got to be the Kentucky Horse Park because there's 45 different breeds of horses, and a lot of whom are equestrian is really big in this area, and we need to do that too. Okay. So uh, I, in the meantime, knew from Joe Johnson, who was the county judge at that point, yeah, Joe. That, that uh, Harkness Edwards, Harky Edwards, Harkness Edwards, part of the Walnut Hall uh, stud family, uh, uh, had a need to sell part of his estate. And so uh, as a result, I went to see Harky and made arrangements through him for us to buy 800 acres, uh, uh, which is now the horse park, and, uh, and uh, right off the interstate. And uh, so... I was the first chairman of the Horse Park Commission. Uh, we did all the feasibility studies, how I could work, where it would be, and told. I went back to tell Harkey, I said, we'll buy it, but it has to be appraised by the state, it has to be legitimate, and you have got to pay, and we, you can only get the appraised price. You can't hike up the thing. So he agreed to that, right. and that's how the horse park got started. And so that's the horse park. And, and I, I met uh, all the top people, and we ended up, when I went back this last time, we got the World Equestrian Games done as a result of my early time with the horse park. Then from there, uh, uh, the uh, I was here. I was again uh, in Lexington, and I had moved my headquarters of Jim Holtz Associates down on Main Street, and uh, had come back from uh, from Frankfort, and was and this is before the NCAA now. Yeah, and uh, uh, and. Uh, there was a, um, um, oh, heck, a bunch of old bars and strip right. joints and what have you on Broadway. And the <laughs> the uh, uh, the uh, urban renewal, Fred Fugazi was the right. was the mayor, and he had a great relationship with Hubert Humphrey. So all at once you've got urban renewal in downtown Lexington. and uh, Many and, different things. And there was uh, railroad tracks that went through downtown and I used to take the train from Ashland, get off the central station uh, depot on Rose street and walk up to the, to the, uh, cause I had never had a car in my life till I yeah. was out of college. So, uh, so uh, I got involved with the fact that, the, and the urban renewal was such that they was in kind 25%. So the city was hung if they didn't build an arena in a big hole in the ground right. on the end of, of Vine Street, that they would have to pay a $3 million penalty, and the city didn't have $3 million. So all at once, I become the first executive director of the Tourist and Convention Commission. In the first meeting, they said, you've got to build an arena. And uh, I, in my background with the state, I understood how to do that because the executive end was on state land. Yeah. And as a result of the rental of the lease of the land, the uh, there was enough revenue to pay for the construction of Freedom Hall. That's how Freedom Hall got built. So uh, so I knew that. I knew the statute that allowed that to happen. So that was the background for building Rupp Arena, and uh, and it was the, probably the best board ever worked with. Jake Graves was the chairman. Garvis Kincaid was on it. Bill Young Sr. was on it. Linda Carey was on it. She's still living. Uh, African American by the name of Harold White was on it. And uh, so through that group, uh, we were able to come up with, uh, and I went all the way across the country to solicit interest from developers. Uh, and we got three that were interested in bidding. It's in the book. Mm-hmm. There were three interested in, in bidding, and, and the idea was that they would, they would do it. They would take all the risk for building what was, ended up becoming the retail mall and yeah. then the hotel, and they would build a hotel because the whole thing – to make sense the hotel had to spin off cash from the and so that's and then i went to uh harry lancaster was in the ad and to dr singletary and said about and well singletary looked at me and said you're crazy you're not you can't build this to wit heisel and bruce glenn and bill jackson it was oa bacon's right arm uh went to see dr singletary and uh 
And he wasn't very nice to us. And he literally threw us out, said, you can't do this. And so I went back to him separately and said, uh, what about if we give you, if we guarantee you the revenue you're making from Oral Coliseum now and you ride on the upside? He said, well, I'd be stupid not to do that. And I said, yeah. you would be. So, uh, so we did the deal on the fact that, that we guaranteed them the revenue. Then we made 14% of the income over and above that. Well, the tickets were five bucks then, but as the tickets got more, we obviously made a lot more money. And uh, yeah. when CM came here as the AD in 1989, he called me and said, you screwed the university. And I said, no. Here's how this happened. So then the deal was redone. Yeah. And uh, so that's how, I mean, that's how Rupp Arena and the Flexion Center got built. Yeah. So. Well, your career has spanned uh, a long period of time. You've done many things, many of which we did not uh, discuss in the show today. But the book is called uh, Jim Host Changing the Game. And uh, it's the description of a life spent in college athletics and um, uh, civic work. And uh, it's a tribute to you, Jim, because of so many pioneering things that you've done um, throughout your life. Well, and we got about a minute here. Well, I want to pay tribute to my family. Uh, uh, I want to also pay tribute to all of those who work uh, within the company. I was not the easiest guy to be around at times, and I was not the easiest guy to work with. I was totally fair, but uh, I was difficult because I well, didn't expect anybody working any harder than I did. Right, and that's true. It's always been the case. I can vouch for that. Yeah. Pipe in at the very end. Hey, if you want to order the book, it has not been officially released yet. You can. It's on uh, Amazon. It is on Amazon. You just put uh, Jim Host in the search line and it will pop up. Yeah. Jim Host, it's changing the game with Eric Moyen, who uh, helped you write it. So we appreciate you being on today. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Tom Dupree Show. It's News Radio 630 WLAP.